Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Hard for some to be part of the church. Some people might say, I don't want to be part of the church because of their doctrine. Others might say it's the music. Others might say it's the sermons. But I really think a big reason why many people are hesitant to get involved in the church is because of the people. Just the messy relationships that come when you get close to other people, even other Christians. Well, it's also said uh, that if you find a perfect church, you better not join it because if you do, you'll ruin it. And that's because the problem is not necessarily with everybody else. The problem has to do with what's right here in all of our hearts as we join together with the people of God. And that's what we're going to look at here in this book of 3 John. What we're doing here at New Life is going through the scriptures, one sermon per Bible book. The series is called Route 66. We started in Genesis and we're almost done. And we're here at the book of 3 John. So, of course, we've been through 1 and 2 John. 3 John is uh, written by the same John as 1 and 2 John. Same John that wrote the Gospel of John. The same John that wrote the book of Revelation. This is the disciple whom Jesus loved. uh, Kind of on the inside group with Jesus. uh, uh, An apostle and a godly man who is writing this book of 3 John at a very old age. Um, this book written later than most other New Testament books toward the end of the first century, 85 to 95 AD. And the theme of the book is walking in the truth. But what we're going to see here in this book of 3 John, this very small little letter, is some people. We're going to meet some people here. We're going to meet three people. Ordinary folks, not unlike the kind of people that you might meet in the church today. And each one of them has something to teach us about what it's like to get along with others. And what we'll find here is that uh, the 21st century church is very much like the first century church. (laughs) That's something else sometimes people will say, oh, I just wish we could get back to be like the church was in the first century as if the first century church didn't have any problems. Well, if you read the scriptures, you'll see that they had many problems, many issues to deal with, and some of the same kinds of issues that we deal with today. So, third John, if you have that open, why don't you stand, if you're able, and I'm going to read the entire book, the whole thing, to you here, all 15 verses of third John. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do to all that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, 
who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So, if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. God in heaven, please, by your spirit, open our hearts and minds to behold the truth of your wonderful, beautiful word now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> All right, so you saw these, uh, th these people, these three names. We're just going to look at these individually, one at a time, and see what we can learn from each of these people in the first century church. So the first guy we meet here is this person named Gaius. And from him, we're going to learn something about the duty of hospitality in these first uh, eight verses. So uh, the letter starts. The elder, that's referring to, to John. John definitely is an elderly person, but this is probably referring more to his office holding in the church as an elder, and he's writing to the beloved Gaius. Now, who is this guy Gaius? Well, if you read through the New Testament, there's actually several places that mention Gaius, a, a different person named Gaius. Um, it's really impossible to tell if this Gaius is the same one mentioned in other books. One of the reasons why is because Gaius was one of the most common names in the Roman Empire. It'd be a little bit like being named John or Bob in, in our culture today. Gaius, very frequently used name, so it could have been a number of different people. So we're not really sure who this person Gaius is, but one thing we know for sure is that according to John, that Gaius is a very godly man. And then John indicates here in verse 2 that uh, he is uh, uh, the beloved Gaius in verse 1. And then in verse 2, he says that he's been, he's been praying for Gaius, not just for his soul, but also for uh, his health. Maybe Gaius had some health problems. We don't know that, but here we see a very clear precedent in the Scriptures for praying for physical health. God cares about our bodies and our health, and John prays for Gaius that he might be in good health. But then we see here in verse 3 that a report has come to John about Gaius. So he says, I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. And so these brothers, this group of Christians, apparently had visited um, Gaius at his church, and then they came back to John, and they say, John, you know, I got to tell you, we were at Gaius's church, and we got to hang out with Gaius for a little while, and we got to know some things about Gaius, and what I can say to you is that that is a man who is walking in the truth. And so John responds to that in this wonderful way. He is just absolutely delighted to hear this. So he says in uh, the start of verse 3, I rejoiced greatly when they came and testified to this truth. Uh, that you are walking in the truth. And then in verse 4, he, he kind of steps it up a little bit and says, not only did I rejoice in this, actually, I have no greater joy in this world than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. There's nothing better than this. Now, um, the word children here is not referring to John's biological children. These are not 
John's kids. We talked about this a little bit last week, but this seems to be those who have been under John's influence. John's been a teacher, a mentor to a number of people, Gaius included. But now Gaius has gone off and done his ministry. John's doing his own ministry, and now he hears this report that, John, everything you taught him and the model that you set for him and you discipled him and you mentored him, and you know what? He's still walking in the truth. And John is just says, man, there's just, there is nothing better than hearing that. I have no greater joy than hearing that. It, it, you know, John uh, might have, or the brothers might have come and said, you know, Gaius has found a great job and he's making a lot of money. Or they might have said, Gaius has these great children and they're, you know, all excelling and getting great grades at school. Or, you know, uh, Gaius has found a house on the Mediterranean Sea. It's a beautiful place. I got to tell you all these things about Gaius. But no, what he says is he's walking in the truth and that's what makes John delighted. Friends, do you know that there's nothing better that can be said about you than that you are walking in the truth? There's no higher compliment that can be said about you than that you are walking in the truth. People might say you're funny. They might say you're smart. They might say you're good looking. All those might be good things, but none of them is as good as being said that you're walking in the truth. Can that be said about you today? What if somebody is here and they go off to another church and they're gonna give a report about what they know about you or about new life? What are they gonna say? Are we people walking in the truth? Are they going to say that about you? Well, you might say, well, what does that mean? <laughs> what does it mean to walk in the truth? Well, uh, here's what it means. I think two things <clears throat> primarily. One has to do with belief or your creed, what you believe in. So to walk in the truth is to hang on, to continue to believe the apostolic gospel. That is that we are sinners, that God has sent a savior for us, that that savior's name is Jesus, that Jesus has lived for us, that he paid the price on the, uh, for our sins on the cross, that he's resurrected from the dead, that he calls us to repent and trust in him, and that when that happens, we know our sins are forgiven and eternal life is ours. That's the apostolic gospel, that's our creed, that's what we believe. To continue to walk in the truth is to not be diverted from that basic message. But it's not just belief, there's also behavior. <laughs> to walk in the truth is not just to believe something, it's to actually behave in a certain way. It has to do with our conduct as well. It's not just believing in Jesus, it's having a life that resembles Jesus. That we're trying to be like Jesus in our conduct. It's both. Walking in the truth is both. To believe in Jesus, but to have no behavior that resembles Jesus is to be a hypocrite. To behave like Jesus, maybe a very righteous, upright, moral life, but to not believe in Jesus, that's to be a moralist. Neither of those by themselves is walking in the truth. Walking in the truth is both. Trust in what Jesus has done and then seeking to please and model your life after him. That's what a Christian does, and that's what it is to walk in the truth, and that's what is to be said of Gaius. Now, specifically what is it about Gaius's life that demonstrates his willingness to submit to Jesus and to, uh, to walk in the truth? And we see that in verses 5 to 8. 
What we see here is that Gaius is a man who practices hospitality. Now, there's much more to be said about walking in the truth than just hospitality, okay? This is not an exhaustive book. We've got to look at the whole Bible to see what the Bible calls us to be as Christians. But here's one very important thing. It's not the only thing, but it's an important thing. Hospitality. So here's the situation. Starting in verse 5, here's what happened. Um, John says this, it's a faithful thing, still talking to Gaius, it's a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, these strangers. So there's this group of people, uh, Gaius doesn't know them, they're strangers to him. But what they've done is they've, they've gone out, if you skip to verse 7, it says they have gone out, they've been sent for the sake of the name, the name is Jesus, that's the gospel. They've been sent out to proclaim the gospel. These are missionaries. These are like itinerant preachers. You know, this is the first century of the church. The church is very small at this time. For the church to grow, people need to be sent out, and the gospel needs to be preached. Of course, that still happens today, but it was all the more essential during this time. And so these brothers have been sent out, and they've received no support from the Gentiles, it says at the end of verse 7. They've accepted nothing from the Gentiles, from pagans, from unbelievers, And so as these itinerant preachers are coming into various towns, the way that they're going to be supported and helped is if Christians open their homes to them. You know, at that time, there's no Holiday Inn. There's no Airbnb. There were things called inns, but these inns were dirty and they were dangerous. And most people didn't want to stay. They were hard to find as well. Remember the story of Mary and Joseph, right? When Mary is pregnant with the baby Jesus, they're looking around for a place to stay and they can't find a place. Finding a place to stay was hard during that time and so Gaius was a man who was frequently opening his home and welcoming these brothers, these itinerant preachers. So verse 8, if you have an ESV, it doesn't say the word hospitality, but the NIV does. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. The NIV says we ought to show hospitality to people like these that we may be fellow workers in the truth. Isn't it interesting? You might remember in 2 John, there was an exhortation not to welcome certain people into your home. False teachers, don't welcome them in because that's to share in the works of wickedness. But here he says, for those preaching the gospel, Welcome them into your home that you may be fellow workers for the truth. Very interesting that the word hospitality, the Greek word, is actually a combination of two words, love and strangers. That's the essence of the word for hospitality, love for strangers. And that's what's being described here in verse 5. These brothers, they're strangers. This isn't... This isn't Gaius just welcoming in his his friends and his buddies and his clique and the people he hangs out with. He's welcoming strangers into his home for the sake of supporting those who proclaim the gospel. Uh, The New Testament is very clear about this duty of hospitality. Romans 12, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. First Peter 4, show hospitality to one another, and don't complain about it. <laughs> it's not easy. I mean, this, that's implied in the verse. Showing hospitality is not easy. You've got to get the place ready. You've got to make a meal. You've got to maybe talk to people you don't know very well. It's not always pleasant. 
but still show hospitality without grumbling. Friends, it just seems to me that hospitality is a lost art in our day and age. There could be a lot of reasons for this. It's easy to find a meal, right? Just drive down to McDonald's or Burger King and get yourself a cheeseburger. It's easy to find food. (laughs) But nonetheless, these commands still stand that as Christians, we are called to extend hospitality. You're called to invite people into your home, to care for people. Do you know that this is probably the primary way that we can build community here as a church? I mean, I know sometimes people come into a church, they find it hard to get to know one another. It's not easy. But the primary way we can do this and build relationships is if all of us are willing to invite people into our homes. This is not just the job of the pastors and their wives, friends. (laughs) It's the job of all of us as a community. Open our homes. Uh, Here's what Christine Pohl says. She wrote a book called Making Room, a great book on hospitality. She says, hospitality is not optional for Christians, nor is it limited to those who are specially gifted for it. It is instead a necessary practice in the community of faith. Now, it's hard to do during a pandemic, isn't it? Because sometimes people are nervous about going into other people's homes, and I acknowledge that, and so this might be kind of an unusual time. But I think we could also say that because of the pandemic, there's never been a time when it's been more important because we're feeling disconnected from one another, not to mention the fact that we're all on our smartphones most of the time and disconnected on the internet and finding our relationships primarily in cyberspace rather than face-to-face. Isn't it interesting that um, John ends this letter in verse 13 saying, I had much to write to you, but I'd rather do it uh, not with pen and ink, but face-to-face, verse 14. I want to talk with you face-to-face. That's the better way to communicate. It's not wrong to communicate by text and email and Facebook Messenger and Instagram. It's not wrong, but if that's the only way you're communicating with people, you're missing something very deep. You're missing face-to-face conversations, and that happens when we practice hospitality. I want to urge you to think, is there somebody you've kind of wanted to get to know. Somebody you see in the congregation, you notice they're a little bit lonely, they feel maybe it seems like they're a little marginalized. Maybe God is calling you to have them over to your house. Have a meal, sit down, and talk. Hospitality is not the same as entertaining. Sometimes people think of them as the exact same, like they're synonyms. Hospitality is not an opportunity to showcase your home. It's not an opportunity to impress people. That's not, the, that's not the gist of it. What, what you're doing is you're caring for people. That's hospitality. Christine Pohl again says this, the distinctive quality of Christian hospitality is that it offers a generous welcome to the least without concern for advantage or benefit to the host. Such hospitality reflects God's greater hospitality that welcomes the undeserving, provides the lonely with a home, and sets a banquet table for the hungry. My wife likes to tell this story of uh, when she was part of a singing team called Proclamation years ago. It was a traveling evangelistic singing team, and um, they would go from church to church, and they would depend on hospitality, on people in the churches opening their homes so that they could stay there. And they went to one home in Michigan, I think it was, and 
Uh, Mary got to the home and it was kind of a little bit of a rundown place, so a little bit nervous maybe going in. And then she goes into the house and uh, one of the first things she notices is this cereal box and out of the cereal box, a cockroach is crawling out of it. (laughs) And she thinks to herself, I am not eating anything (laughs) in this house. But she spends some time with the people and the people spend time with her and she said she felt very cared for. People loved her, people listened to her, and she and her friends indicated that they loved the the Rocky movies. Well, these people, they didn't even have a VCR. They went out and rented a VCR, brought it back in with Rocky movies along with it, and set it up so that Mary and the other members of the proclamation team could watch those movies. And because Mary was so cared for by these people, she said she eventually got to the point where she said, I'll eat anything they put on the table. (laughs) Except for a bowl of cereal out of that box. (laughs) She was willing to eat anything, and she did eat what they served, and the reason why is because she was cared for. It didn't matter that the place wasn't in tip-top shape. It didn't matter that it was a little bit dirty. In the end, it didn't matter because she was cared for. And that's the purpose of hospitality. That's what Gaius did. That's what we need to do for one another. So that's the first person, Gaius. But now we go on to the second person. His name is Diotrephes. And from him we see something about the danger of pride. Unfortunately, not everybody in the church is like Gaius. (laughs) There are some people like Diotrephes. When we say it would be great to be part of the church if it weren't for people, I think we're thinking about people like Diotrephes. Uh, This is a guy who doesn't love others more than himself like Gaius. He loves himself more than others. And we see this very clearly, and we see his main problem, or the, uh, the, the, the manifestation, the expression of this guy's problem is it's his pride, but it's his pride in particular as it's seen in his defiance against authority. End of verse 9. End of verse 9. He does not acknowledge our authority. That's, that's Diotrephes' problem. So here's John. John's an apostle. He has authority. He says our authority, maybe referring to other apostles or maybe other elders in the church, but Diotrephes is just doesn't want to acknowledge authority. Now, authority is a you know kind of a, a difficult word for a lot of us. Um, it's very common today for people to want to kind of defy authority. Uh, we see actually in our uh, nation we see just a crumbling of authority all around us. We see people defying police officers. We see looting and rioters. We've probably heard about this. Uh, area called Chaz in Seattle, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, where these people set up uh, a part of the city where they were completely independent of the laws of the United States. That's what they declared. It was just a way for them to defy authority. And so for many, authority is is an issue. For many of us, we don't like to think about submitting to authority. And and for some, it's for very good reason because authority has been abused by many of people. I mean, that's that's true, right? I mean, politicians have abused their authority and police officers have abused their authority. We know that. And priests and pastors have abused their authority. 
And so there's a balance here we need to keep in mind, the reality of authority with the possibility that it can be abused. A guy named Timothy Laniac says authority without compassion leads to harsh authoritarianism. It's the abuse of authority. But compassion without authority leads to social chaos. <laughs> That's kind of what we're seeing in our country in some places. So th there has to be a, a balance. So although authority can, <clears throat> can be abused, we know that that's not primarily the issue here in the book of 3 John. It's not that John is abusing his authority. If you look back to verse 9, you'll see what the problem is. It's because Diotrephes likes to put himself first. That's the problem. He's full of pride. Diotrephes is a guy who has got to be the boss. He's got to be the guy with the last word. He's got to be the guy who makes all the rules. He's got to be the guy who is not told what to do. He has to be in charge. That's Diotrephes' problem. He's got to be first. He's got to be in the spotlight. He wants people to listen to him. He doesn't want to listen to anybody else. And it's rooted in this very simple description. He's got to be first. He's full of pride. This guy named Alexander Strauch says this, behind most church fights and unresolved divisions is ugly human pride. And the worst kind of pride is religious pride, the pharisaical pride of self-righteousness and superiority. That's Diotrephes' issue, feeling of superiority. So how do we see that? What actually happened? I just love how the scriptures sometimes are just so, you know, practical and earthy and realistic. Here's, here's what happens, starting in verse 9. I have written something to the church. John wrote something. And apparently he gave some instructions to Diotrephes. And the instruction apparently was, Diotrephes, you need to welcome these brothers into your home. It was a command for hospitality. These traveling missionaries. Welcome them in. But Diotrephes' response, according to verse 10, is that he refused to do it. I mean, first of all, even before that, it says he's talking wicked nonsense against us. So, Obviously, Diotrephes does not like John. <laughs> They're not getting along. We don't really know why. There's, a, there's tension there in that relationship. And so Diotrephes is talking wicked nonsense, gossiping behind his back, slandering his character. That's where it begins. But then it goes on, and Diotrephes just says, I, I'm, I'm not going to do that. He refuses to welcome the brothers. So these itinerant preachers are coming along, and they need a place to stay. And Diotrephes just says, no, and I don't care what John said about it. John gave me an order to do it. I'm not going to do it. But not only that, he stops those who want to. There's actually Christians who want to welcome believers into their home and show hospitality. And Diotrephes steps in and says, no, you can't do that. And not only that, but he puts them out of the church. He disciplines them. He penalizes them for doing a godly and a righteous thing. I mean, what a, what a bad guy. <laughs> I mean, this is the kind of guy you don't want in your church. This is the kind of guy you don't want leading your church. Obviously, he's in some kind of a position of, of authority here. But it all goes back to that simple phrase in verse 9. Just really simple. It's not really that complicated. He just wants to be first. Just wants to be the guy that gets all the attention. Wants to have the last word. Wants to be the boss. And that kind of pride, it's a very simple thing. That kind of pride not only leads to rejecting authority, it leads to abusing authority as well. And John's ready to do something about it. He says, 
You know, starting in verse 10, if I come, I'm going to bring it up. <laughs> we we got to talk about this. This has got to be confronted. And I think the church in general is probably slow and a little bit weak in dealing with this kind of troublemaking person. There comes a time when you've got to sit down and you've got to challenge a person for his pride and defiance of authority. We don't know exactly what John did, but we know what he planned to do. So the final authority, I mean, let's just kind of be straight on this. The final authority for all Christians is the scriptures, right? The Bible is the final authority. No pope or pastor or creed or confession has final authority. It's the Bible. That's why Paul in Acts chapter 17, you remember when he went to the city of Berea, and it said that the Bereans were of very noble character because they examined everything in the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. That's their way of saying the Bible is final authority. Even Paul is subject to the authority of the scriptures. Everybody is subject to the authority of the scriptures. But there are subordinate authorities that God has established in our world. The authority in the family, for instance. Children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. Kids, this is written to you, children. Obey your parents. <laughs> your parents have authority over you. And you're responsible to obey them. Authority in the family. There's authority in government and civil authorities. Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. We're responsible to submit to governing authorities. Yes, there's a time for civil disobedience. That's a, that's a different sermon. <laughs> Generally speaking, we're responsible to submit to the government. But there's also authority in the church. Hebrews 13, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. And this wouldn't be written if church leaders didn't have some authority. So a good question to ask is, is how, how are you responding to the authority structures that God has placed over you? <laughs> it can be different for all of us. But one demonstration or one test of pride in your heart is your response to authority, whatever that might be. And Diotrephes is full of pride, so he defies authority. One last person that we're going to meet here is a guy named Demetrius. And with Demetrius, we see the distinction of a good reputation. So at the very end here, verses 11 to 15, what, what, what is it that can be said about Demetrius? Look at verse 12. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone. Everybody talks highly of Demetrius. And then John adds to it in verse 12 when he says, we also add our testimony. In, in other words, we agree with that. We testify along with everybody else about Demetrius and his character and his integrity. Demetrius is a guy who's got a great reputation. I mean, there are few things more valuable in this life, right, than our reputation. What do people say about you? If someone were writing a letter, again, about new life or about you, what, what would they say? What would you want them to say? What is your reputation among others? Now, the truth is our, our reputation very often follows us. That is, quite frankly, our reputation is very often deserved. You know, not always. There are exceptions. Jesus had a reputation for being a, a glutton and a drunkard, and we know he wasn't. 
So Jesus had a bad reputation among some. So yeah, there is a, a sense in which you can have a reputation that is false. But more often than not, friends, our reputation is what our lifestyle and, and deeds and behavior have sown over the years. That, that's just the truth. Now, if, if that's discouraging to you, uh, let me just apply the gospel to your heart, friends. Here's the good news. You are not saved by your reputation. Isn't that good news? You are not saved by your reputation. God's love for you is not dependent upon your reputation. God's love for you is not dependent on what other people think of you. God's testimony about you is not necessarily the same as what others testify about you. Because your reputation in the gospel, Christian, has already been secured and earned by what Jesus has done on your behalf. Jesus' reputation is enough, and his reputation is your reputation. Because his righteousness is imputed to you by faith, and it's not anything you can earn. You can't earn that kind of reputation. It's a reputation you have to receive by faith that Jesus has accomplished for you. Before God, your reputation, Christian, is secure. But before people, reputation's got to be earned. That's true. And it can be quickly lost. So, what do we do about our reputation? Here's one thing, and the instruction comes right out of 3 John here. One way that you can develop a good reputation is by surrounding yourself with other people of good reputation and imitating them, seeking to be like them. Look what it says in um, verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil. That's referring to diatrophies in the previous verses. But imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil is not seen God. It's very simple. And then he goes on to talk about Demetrius. So imitating evil refers to Diotrephes. Imitating good, looking ahead, referring to Demetrius. Now, of course, there are times when we have to surround ourselves with, with people who, who need the gospel and people of low reputation. The scriptures say, come associate with the lowly. Now, I'm not saying that that doesn't take place. But in general, a healthy thing is to find godly people of character and integrity, people you respect, and hang out with them, and imitate them, be like them. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I think sometimes Christians will say, no, 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 I'm not going to imitate any mere man. I'm not going to imitate any sinful person. I only want to imitate Jesus. I mean, that's a noble thought. I appreciate it. But the scriptures tell us, imitate what is good wherever you find it. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's the qualification. You imitate godly people to the degree that their life leads you to be like Jesus. Friends, I, I want to say this, you know, as the guy who's been the pastor of this church for 16 years, there are a lot of people in this congregation worthy of imitation. There are a lot of godly people here. We're all sinners. We all need the blood of Jesus. We all got our hang-ups and issues. But in terms of just a general pattern of life, there's a lot of godly people here. And that's part of the beauty of being part of the church is that you get to be around them. If you're a young Christian in particular, a young person, you got to have your eyes peeled for people that you want to imitate. And I would suggest you even go approach them and talk to them and say, you know what? I really respect you. I admire you. I, I admire the way you carry yourself. I've heard you speak. I admire the way you've raised your family. I admire the way you've endured suffering. 
I admire the way you have responded to the challenges in your life. And I want to know, will you, will you hang out with me? <laughs> Can we get together? Can we meet for coffee? Can we meet for lunch? Maybe a few times a week? I think the Blaylocks are being pointed at here. They might be an example. <laughs> yeah, that's the way it works. You're in a community and you hang around people who you admire that their character and instruction will rub off on you. We're not saved by being like people, okay? We're not saved by earning a good reputation. We're only saved by the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in the meantime, this is a way we grow. Here's another way you can do this is is read good biographies. You know how much I love recommending books. And here is a, a great way to learn about people that you might want to imitate. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, a man of great courage who challenged the Nazis. There's a wonderful biography by Eric Metaxas. Um, wonderful book. Uh, here's an, a biography by, uh, about John Calvin um, by a guy whose name I can't pronounce. Uh, Herman Selderquist, I think. Very good book. And um, a biography of a guy named George Whitfield, who was a very famous evangelist back in the 1700s. American Spiritual Founding Father is a subtitle there. I'd, I'd recommend all these books to you. Read about godly people and seek to imitate them. Well, so the church would be great if it weren't for the people. Is that right? <laughs> uh, no, that's wrong. That's wrong. You need the people of God. You need the church. You need a person like Gaius to learn from, a person walking in the truth, a person who gives you an example, gives you an example like hospitality. You need to see that kind of thing. You need actually a diatrophies in your life too. A person who helps you know how to love your enemies. A person who helps you know how to be patient with difficult, prideful people. Maybe you need a diatrophies. And you need a person like Demetrius, a person to inspire you, a person who's worthy of imitation, so that together, as the people of God, we might slowly be further and more and more conformed to the image of our Savior, until that day when all of our personality conflicts are eliminated and we worship Jesus together in perfect relationship forever and ever. That's our future. Jesus, come quickly. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word, for how it is so clear and realistic and helpful and nourishing. Thank you for speaking to us, and thank you for Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.